All right, so the world tells us something about success. And the world tells you and I that in order to be successful in this world, you have to put yourself first. It's me first. Uh, If I'm going to win in this world, I have to focus on me. Do whatever it takes for me to win, to succeed, to be successful. But this can be challenging for you and I, right, as Christians, as Christ followers, because you and I know, ah, me first. I don't think God says it that way. In fact, to be successful in God's eyes, we need to, God tells us we got to put others first. And so we talked about that last week, and we talked about being successful, and we talked about finding success while living in the midst of a, you know, a me first world. And the reason this is important for you and I to talk about is because if we're not careful, as Jesus followers, it's very easy to slip into the me first mentality and the me first way of living. And when we slip into that, man, that affects our relationship with God big time. And it affects our relationship with others. So to be successful in your walk with the Lord and even in this world, the first key that we talked about was to keep integrity the first priority of your life. Keep integrity the priority in your interactions, you know, in in your homes, in your businesses, in your relationships. And when we keep integrity a priority and we focus on the how, remember how we do something, how things get done, man, when we do that, that keeps our relationship with God, it keeps it good, it keeps it tight. And the reality is this, truth and honesty and integrity, it's actually a good strategy. It's a great strategy for business owners, for being an employee, for being a friend, for being a parent. Now, sure, some will take advantage of you if you decide to be successful in God's eyes and have truth and integrity you know, and honesty be your guide. But overall, even though you'll take your hits, overall, it is a good, it's a wise strategy. And on occasion, it even yields worldly success. I was just thinking about that this week, and I was thinking about businesses that, you know, are, are, are built on and founded on Christian principles and, and, and even seeing their success by living out truth and integrity and honesty. I think about, you know, Chick-fil-A and how God has blessed that ministry. I think about Dave Ramsey and his ministry, Dave Ramsey Solutions. I think about In-N-Out Burger, Forever 21. Uh, I think about Hobby Lobby. And, and, and in fact, I was, I was kind of digging into that a little bit this week. And we don't have time. I'll bring it up, you know, in a stewardship message down the road one day. But the Hobby Lobby story is incredible. And, and if you ever get a chance to, I know I'm going to be reading it later this year, the, the, the person who founded Hobby Lobby to read his book. And, and here's a company that gives away over 50% of its profits. And yet they're still one of the top 400 countries in the country making, making money. And, and, and I want you to listen to this. Hobby Lobby literally declared that it's everything they have, that it's all God's. And so the trustees have given all stock, have put all stock in the company in an irrevocable trust. And if the company is ever sold, 90% of the proceeds will go to Christian ministries and 10% to local charities. That's their philosophy. Now, I'm thinking if I'm the kids, I'm like, oh, dang, man, that's no good. But that's their philosophy. That's their ministry. Honesty, integrity, it's built on, on saying, I want to be successful with God. And that's not how everybody needs to do it, but that's how they've chosen to do it. And God just keeps giving them success in his eyes and in the world's eyes. Now, 
There's not always the happily ever after stories of success in the world by living and doing things in a way that honors God first, right? It doesn't all end up that way. It doesn't all work out that way. In fact, there will be times, there will be seasons, there will be decades even of difficulty. And in those times, the only thing that you and I can do is to patiently wait on God, to patiently trust God to provide, to patiently wait on Him and His timing. And that can be hard. In fact, we looked at this last week, 1 Chronicles 29, 17, it says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and you're pleased with integrity. In other, in other words, there's a testing that goes on when you and I will put integrity first. When we choose to put integrity first, when we choose to wait on God, a testing comes. There's going to be a pressure on us. But don't give up and don't give in because God does want to do a good work in you. Here's the question today. Is there ever a point, you know, we're talking about put integrity first. We talk about patiently waiting on God. Is there ever a point where we need to stop being patient? Is there ever a point where we need to stop trusting by waiting and it's time to finally walk away? Is there ever a time to go? Now, by any chance, did I just capture your attention? <laughs> You're like, really? They just asked that in church? Is there ever a time? If so, how? If so, when? Well, let's continue the story of Jacob and see if there is ever a time that you and I finally say, it's time to move on. Let's pick it up. Now, as we're going to go to Genesis 31, let me give the context real quick or a reminder if you haven't been here. Jacob has agreed to work for 14 years for his wages for, for Laban, his father-in-law, because and, and he got from that, he got his two brides, Rachel and Leah. And the 14 years are up, and Jacob is ready to head back to his homeland, but his father-in-law, Laban, wants him to stay. Jacob's like, no, I want to go. Laban's like, no, I want you to stay. So Jacob says, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to keep integrity my priority. I don't want to dishonor my father-in-law. So, so Jacob agrees to stay, and, and, and Laban's like, what do you want your wages to be? And, and Jacob says, just give me as my wages the leftovers, the runts, the mutts of the, of the flock. I'll take the spotted and the sh speckled sheep and goats. I'll just take, you know, the runts. And some of you, you know, some of you, I think, are into that, right? Some of you with your animals, you have the mangy runts, right? You have the mangy leftover dogs. And some of you guys just kind of giving you a heart for, you know, the, the rejected animals. And that's kind of like what his heart was. You're like, I'll take them. You can have all the best. I'll take the leftovers. So Jacob faithfully served six more years uh, for, for Laban. And in this time, so this is now a total of 20 years, but in this six-year period of time, God just blesses the socks off of Jacob. So much so that he now has more than Laban. And this is where we're going to pick up the story. Let's look at Genesis 31. We're going to start in verse 1. It says this, Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude towards him was not what it had been before. In other words, Jacob sees that the landscape is changing. Jacob's, uh, Laban's sons 
think that, you know, Jacob is stealing. Uh, reading between the lines, they think that Jacob is stealing their money, their, their wealth. And now, even though, ja- and this is what's amazing about this story, Jacob prioritized his integrity so much, so maybe you remember from last week, he prioritized, you know, keep integrity first and foremost. He set up the contract with Laban with a whole bunch of checks and balances. And one of the biggest checks and balance was, hey, you can come look at my flock anytime you want. And if there is ever an animal that isn't spotted or speckled, in other words, if there's ever an animal that's a solid animal, it means I stole it from you. He set up this incredible checks and balances. I, I, my integrity is going to be first and foremost, but the rumors are spreading. And Laban's kids are seeing this outsider get wealthier than they are. Then it goes on and says this, The Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I'll be with you. God says, You're done here. It's time for you to go home to your family. Then in verses 4 through 8, Jacob gathers his family together and he tells them, you know, what's going on here. And he tells them that Laban's attitude, it's not what it was before towards Jacob. And we learn in, this, in these verses that no matter how many times Laban changed the rules, he changed them 10 different times on them, no matter how many times that happened, God just kept blessing Jacob. Didn't matter what Laban did with the rules, God would come in and show up and, and, and make it still work out for Jacob. Verse 13, God says to Jacob, it's time to go. Notice what he says. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. In verses 14 through 16, Rachel and Leah are hurt. They're, they're, they're injured. They're saying in this passage, as, as far as Laban being our father, I mean, I mean, this guy sold us as slaves, which isn't really true, but he sold us as slaves. The money our dad got for us, he was only thinking about himself. He didn't act like a dad should act. He spent it all on himself. So they're like, hey, Jacob, you're our husband. We trust you. We're behind your decision to leave and to leave our father. So, we see in these first passages that Jacob realized it's time to leave Haran and head home. We see that God is also saying it's time to go home because staying any longer would be unproductive, number one, and number two, it would be be destructive. If you stay any longer, it's going to be unproductive and it's going to be destructive. Now, what's interesting to me is Laban changed the rules on Jacob ten different times. And God didn't say to to Jacob, you're done, after the first time Laban changed the rules. He didn't say, you're done here, you can leave after the fifth time or the ninth time. He waited till after the tenth time to 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 say to Jacob, now you can leave. Why did God wait till the eleventh time? What's the difference? Well, Jacob saw, we know because we see the passages, Jacob saw something he hadn't seen before. Jacob saw something different in the demeanor of Laban and in the demeanor of Laban's sons. He now has this huge target on his back. And Laban and his sons, he's sensing, are going to rip him off. In their jealousy, in their insecurity, and in their greed, Jacob is sensing something really bad is now coming. 
so it's time to go. And by the way, God saw it too. And so God said, it's time to go. Get out of here. Get going. Leave at once. So we're talking about this idea of being successful in the eyes of God. And, and, and being successful in this, you know, Jacob, I mean, Laban's the perfect, you know, me first person out there. He's a perfect picture of the me first person. How do you be successful with God in a me first world? Well, make living a life of integrity your first priority, then patiently trust God with his timing and trust that he'll provide. But then we see here this morning, don't continue with destructive people. Don't continue with destructive people. In other words, there is a time to pull back when you are in situations, when you are in circumstances, when you are in relationships with people where it is going to become destructive, harmful, crippling, even violent. Now there's a difference between having integrity and being patient versus being a doormat. There's a difference. And the challenge for you and I is to manage that line, to manage that fine line between when things are productive and when there's an opportunity, you know, between trusting and having faith and giving it a try and giving it a try again, or when things are headed south and things are at a place now where it's going to be destructive. Jacob saw he was going to lose. And I don't know if he was thinking about just the finances. I doubt he was, but he was seeing that he was going to lose everything. Not just a cut of his wages, not just the changing of the rules like Laban had done ten different times, but he saw major destruction coming. He saw harm coming. He saw the changes in Laban and in Laban's sons. And so did God. We see this necessity of getting out and leaving we, you know we see that in the New Testament as well? We see that in the ministry of Jesus. In John chapter 8, it tells us that the people got so hostile to Jesus that they picked up stones and they were ready to kill Jesus. And in that passage, it doesn't tell us that Jesus looked at them and said, I need you to release that stone. It doesn't tell us that Jesus exercised patience in the situation. They wanted to kill him. So what did Jesus do? John 8 in that passage. If you know the story, you know that Jesus slipped out the back. It wasn't time to talk, to reason, to engage. It was only destructive at that point, and so Jesus slipped out. What about the Apostle Paul? Did the Apostle Paul have to deal with something like this? Oh, you bet he did. Paul, now, Paul was the kind of guy who, he would hang in there and hang in there and hang in there. I mean, I don't think anybody was more patient, other than Jesus, was more patient than Paul. And he was like, I'm going to give him a try, I'm going to give him another time, and I'm going to give him another time. And there was this one time where, where you know, Paul would always stick around and, and, and go for it and say, ah, it'll work out. One time, Paul, things were so bad and so destructive that he had no more options. The patience was done. And it tells us in Acts <clears throat> chapter 9, verse 25, that Paul's followers took him by night. They're like, hey, Paul, you're even missing it. We got it. You, you don't even realize what's happening. This is bad. This is destructive. They took him by night. They lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall so that he could get away. One time, Paul was before Festus and before Felix in Caesarea. Uh, and, and over Maritima, over by the ocean. And, and they were there, <clears throat> and the Jews were falsely accusing him. And, and man, it was just getting bad, and, and everything that was going on was actually illegal. And Paul knew it was finally so destructive 
that in Acts chapter 25, it tells us that he appealed to Caesar. He said, I'm going to exercise my rights as a Roman citizen. I'm appealing to Caesar. I'm not taking any more chances with you guys. I'm not going to be patient with you in this situation anymore. Later on, Paul writes to, to Titus. And he said this in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He said, warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. In other words, there comes a point in time when you and I, we just don't keep going back to the well. There comes a point in time where we don't keep going back because it's not helpful. It's not productive. In fact, it's even destructive if we keep going back. You know, right now, there's a lot of fires raging in Northern California, right? And, and you think about the fires and how that works. There, there's a time when, when you see the fires out there and you're like, oh, it's a nice little sunset. Isn't that nice, right? And you enjoy the sunset. And, and there's a time you're seeing that blaze off in the distance. You're like, oh, that's, you know, that's, that's nice. And, 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 you know, you're taking your garden hose and you're watering around your house, right? And, and there comes a time when the flames are getting close. You're like, oh, my goodness, wow, that, that, that's getting close. And then there's a time when you finally say, we're out of here. Pack our bags. Destruction is coming. And that's what we're talking about here this morning. There's a point when it's no longer beneficial, it's no longer productive to say. Now, when we talk about this truth that we're talking about this morning, of not continuing with destructive people, or not continuing with destructive circumstances, it's a bit subjective. It really is. And the interesting thing about this is that not every, and it's not obvious to everyone as to the exact point in time of when it's time to go. So let me give you some steps that Jacob took in the effort to help you if you find yourself, and we'll start illustrating this in a moment, as you find yourself in these kind of circumstances or situations or relationships. What are some steps Jacob took? Well, first of all, his first step was he, did, he came to the point where he realized he didn't have any other options. In other words, there is no more patience that can be exercised towards Laban or towards his sons. There's no more digging deeper. There's no more working harder. There's no more being more patient, more kind, more loving. Jacob had no more options in his mind, right? He had no more options. So what does this look like for you? Well, maybe it's a business deal and you've been trying to track with it and go with it and work on it, but you find it out and you realize, man, if I keep going on this, if I move forward, I'm going to end up in court. It's going to be a lawsuit. Maybe you're an employee and something's going on at work and you've been trying to hang in there and pray about it and do all of this and you get to the point where you're like, man, if I keep moving forward on this, I'm going to be written up. I'll maybe even be fired. Or maybe it's with a person and you're like, man, if I meet with them one more time, I've already tried to meet with them 10 times. I've brought people in. I've done everything I can. But if I meet one more time with this person, it's going to get ugly or worse. There comes a point when you feel like you have no more healthy options. That's where Jacob was with Laban. 
But don't stop there. Definitely don't let that be your only criteria. If you're feeling like you have no more options, you've gone through this journey, this process of patience, and you, you five times, six times, ten times, whatever, and you're like, okay, I don't have any more options. Well, why don't you check in with some other people to make sure they don't have a different perspective. Get confirmation from others. Get the insights, the opinions, and the counsel of, and maybe this goes without saying, but let me say it, of godly people, right? Proverbs, uh, I mean, there's a lot of verses. I just wrote a couple up here. 11, 15, 12, 15, 15, 22, 19, verses 20 and 21. They all talk about the wisdom of seeking counsel. And, and, and God wants us to seek godly counsel. And so that's what Jacob does here. He didn't assume that he saw the whole picture. He was feeling like, I don't have any other options. So he, he reached out to his wives and he shared the story. And as he shared what was happening here, they saw it. And they're like, you know what? As we look at everything that's going on these last 20 years, everything you've done, every step you've taken, every time you've been patient and loving and trusting, we agree with you. We see what you see. We agree it's time to go. See, in Jacob's mind, he thought he had no more options, but then he confirmed it with people around him. And you might find you're in a situation or circumstance and, and you think you have no more options, but you go to a godly person and they start sharing with you and you're like, oh my goodness, I missed all of that. I was so caught up in my hurt or my pain or this or being you know, messed up or this or what, that I missed it. Thank you. Jacob had no options. He confirmed it with those people around him. And then here's the key. You make sure God's word weighs in on the decision. You make sure you go to God. You make sure you have approval from God. What does God's word say? Listen, I, I know me and I know you. And I know that I can create a scenario where I don't think I have any more options, right? We're all good at that. And I can even frame it in such a way that I seek counsel, even godly counsel. And I could put it out there and maybe pull the wool over certain people's eyes and that they'll agree with me. But if it doesn't jive with God's word, no amount of feelings and emotions, no amount of counsel, godly counsel. If God doesn't let you out of it, sorry. God's word trumps everything. If you have a problem with somebody and you've been struggling with this person and it seems really bad and you've come to the point where you're like, I'm out of here. Oh, really? Well, what is the Bible? And I talk to this person, these people, and they say, well, that's not good, and that's destructive, and you need to get out of there. The pastor even said it on stage, so go ahead and go. Oh, really? Well, what does God say? Matthew 18. He says, it says, go to them. Have you done that? Yeah. He says, have you taken other people with you? No, I haven't done that. Oh, okay, well, you haven't done what God said yet. You haven't gone before the church. You haven't done any of these steps that God says. Do you realize why it's so important to know what God's Word says? Because God's word is your guide. It's the lamp to your feet. It's the pathway. It lights your path. And no amount of counsel from other people, even godly counsel, even good Google godly counsel. Hey, I Googled it. And I read 10 people and what they said. Okay. 
God's word is what ties the bow in it. God's counsel is the most important thing for you. It's why you and I need to be in the word of God. So that's the three-point process that Jacob used for determining it was time to go. He didn't think he had any other way out. He didn't see any other options. He then sought counsel, and, 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 that, and his thinking was confirmed by the wisdom of others, and then he sought God's word. And, God, and he got approval from God, and God told him, it's time to go. And at that point, you don't continue with destructive people. You don't continue with a destructive circumstance. That's when you say it's time to move on. But this isn't easy. And, and it should be extremely slow and long-suffering and patience and patient before we land on this. For Jacob, it was in essence how long for Jacob? In essence, 20 years. If you're really going to kind of look at the whole picture. But make sure you're living out your Christianity through this process in a God-honoring way. Christianity walks in wisdom and in truth, and it's clarified by the truth of God's Word. Let's get back to our text. We're going to pick up in verse 17. Genesis 31. Jacob put his children and his wives on camels. He drove all his livestock ahead of him, along with all the goods he had accumulated in Padam Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Now we're going to try to read a lot of verses. I'm going to try to get through them quickly. There's a lot that's going to happen here in the next few minutes. Jacob and his family, they're heading home. And basically it's springtime now. It's shearing season, which means for Laban it's 24-7 out in the workplace. And while Laban is away, Rachel steals the household gods. Now they're called teraphim. They're about six-inch uh, six high little gods, and every family in that area would have them. And they were kind of like good luck charms of the ancient days. But they were more than that, and this is important. We'll kind of figure this out later in the story, I think, and maybe you'll draw the same conclusion. They're often associated with inheritance rights. And you'd have one of these teraphim for each of your kids. And, and, and it would represent their inheritance in the estate of the family. So Rachel is leaving her father, heading to a foreign land for her. She takes the teraphim. In other words, what is she saying? When my dad dies, I can come back and claim my inheritance rights, right? Verse 20, moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, important, he deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him, I like, how the, I like how it was put here, that he was running away. So he fled with all he had, he crossed the Euphrates and headed for the hill country of Gilead. You see, Jacob's still Jacob. That's kind of one of the reasons I love this story. He's trusting God, but he's still trying to live by his own wits. Isn't that interesting? Any of you relate to that? I can. He wants to be, obey God. That's what he wants to do. Even if he finds himself, ah, but i got to deceive this person in the process. Man, I've been there, and I'm like two steps forward, one step back. Amen to that? It's not a good amen, but it's a reality amen. <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, I get it. I, I, I'm there. But it shows you how bad the relationship with Laban was. It had so deteriorated that he was like, I just got to get out. I can't even have a conversation with him. He felt he had to deceive Laban. 
and we're not much different. Verse 22, on the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled, taking his relatives with him. He pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country. So he, he, went, he finally hears about the news and he goes after him. Verse 24, then God came to Laban in a dream at night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him, and Laban and his relatives camped there too. Then Laban said to Jacob, verse 26, What have you done? You've deceived me. You've carried off my daughters like captives in a war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me? So I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of timbrels and harps. You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. Goodbye. This guy's a piece of work, right? I mean, Laban really is. He's trying to make himself out to, this, out to be this, you know, this compassionate grandpa that's going to miss everybody, even though he's been ripping off his family and his daughters for, for 20 years. Verse 29. Laban says, I have the power to harm you, but last night the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, man, Jacob, you're lucky God's holding me back. Verse 30, but why did you steal my gods? Hmm. So you ran off without saying goodbye, and that's bad enough, but you also stole my gods. Now the story gets more interesting. Verse 31, Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take my daughters away from me by force, which again, he thought he had no other options. But if you find anyone who has your gods, that person shall not live. Uh-oh. Sounds like Jacob doesn't know who stole the gods. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me, and if so, take it. Verse 34. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. The Bible just keeps it real, okay? It, it just keeps it real. It really does, and, and that's, again, kind of the cool thing about the Bible. So he searched, but he could not find the household God. I mean, I actually think this is pretty brilliant, right? It's a good strategy because women, when they were going through their period, they were considered unclean, and anything they touched was considered unclean during that, you know, that time. And, and so she's like, oh, my goodness, he's going to search everything. Well, if I sit on the saddle and the gods are right here, oh, sorry, I can't get up. I'm having my period. He's like, ooh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Ladies, don't use that as a strategy today. <laughs> I didn't say this was a godly strategy. Verse 36. Jacob was angry and took, because again, why is he, well, remember, Jacob doesn't know about the gods. He doesn't know about Rachel. He doesn't know about any of this stuff. Jacob was angry and took Laban to task. What is my crime, he asked Laban. How have I wronged you that you hunt me down? Now that you've searched through all my goods, what have you found that belongs to your household? Put it here in front of your relatives and mine and let them judge between the two of us. Jacob's ticked. He's calling Laban out. Verse 38 uh, through 42, he goes on and he lays into Laban. He's just like, that's it. I've been working for you for 20 years. All the mistreatment, all the false accusations, all the disrespect, all the deliberately taking advantage of me, all the unfairly changing my wages. And, and he's just laying into him. And then he says this, and God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands. And last night he rebuked you. And Laban 
Reuben's like, oh, that felt so, I mean, Jacob's like, oh, it felt so good. Finally get it off my chest. The text says he was angry. He was furious. So he called Laban out, verse 43. Laban answered, the, the women are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. That's called narcissism 101, <laughs> right? When people are narcissistic like Laban, they are blinded to the, the, what's so obvious in front of them. They can't see it. They can't see that Jacob worked 14 years for his brides. And yet Laban's sitting here saying, mine, 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 mine. Verses 44 through 53, they end up making a treaty with each other. They offer a sacrifice. They have a meal together. And then they set up a boundary between each other, basically saying, Laban, we'll stay on this side of the boundary. Jacob, you stay on that side of the boundary. Why did Laban set that boundary up? Do you remember the God's thing? The inheritance thing? Do you think maybe he set it up because he's like, that's fine if she's going to leave and one of my gods is missing? I don't want someone coming back later claiming some inheritance rights. Just a thought. The Bible doesn't tell us. What you know about Laban, would that be a far stretch? For me, it's not. He's like, hey, I don't want anybody ever coming back. Once you're out of sight, out of mind, you're not getting anything from me. Verse 55, early the next morning. Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home, as far as we know, never to be heard of again. The story of Jacob and Laban comes to an unhappy ending, and it ends with deception and anger and bitter accusations. But in this story, we see how to fight the darkness of a me-first world, of a narcissistic world. This is another way you and I can be successful before God. And that's what Jacob did. You confront deception with truth. After 20 years of patience and integrity and even sucking it up, Jacob steps up and shines light into Jacob's deception or into Laban's deception. Jacob steps up to protect his reputation, his character, his integrity. You see, when you and I patiently wait on God, it doesn't mean that we let manipulation and deception go unchecked. There's a difference between complaining and not complaining versus a time for confronting. Jacob confronted his father-in-law only twice that we know of. On the wedding day when that whole scam happened and he lied to him, and then here when he's lied and made all these false accusations, he said, there's a time to deal with this. And I'm going to call you out on this. There's a time not to continue with destructive people and avoid them. But if we're not careful, you and I can all become a bunch of avoiders, right? We just avoid everybody. And we think we're being godly. Oh, the Bible says, come out from them and be separate. And we start spot-versing. But that's where the whole salt of the earth comes in, right? Matthew 5, 13, salt preserves. That's where the light of the world comes in. Light exposes dark deeds. Jesus said in John 8, 44, that our enemy says his native tongue is lying and deception, right? That's his native tongue. And so as Christians, we're called to confront the lack of truth, to shine light into and expose deceptiveness. We preserve truth, being the salt of the earth. We shine light into deception. That's the light of the world. Jesus did it, by the way, with the Pharisees, didn't he? So let me challenge you this morning. By not bringing truth into deception, we're actually promoting darkness. Did you hear that? It's one of the primary struggles, I think, of the church today. 
being people of truth. We try real hard to be people of grace and loving and patient and have integrity and, and, you know, and being careful around those who are destructive. But what about stepping up and stepping in and confronting with truth? We, I think the church today in America it struggles with this. And if we don't step up, if we don't step in, if we don't shine the light of truth, we're going to promote darkness and lies you know, you know, kind of passively. So what does it look like? Ephesians 5 or 4.15 says, speak the truth in love. So relationally, be honest. In love, care for people in the process. Put yourself in their position. Don't dodge. Don't avoid. Don't massage the conversation with the, per- with the person just to kind of avoid it all. Step up, step in, be honest. Speak truth and love in that relationship. In business, it might be the review of an employee. Hey, maybe some of you are in that situation or, or you're in management or something and it's time to write someone up and you're like, I'm just going to write them up and I'm going to say it all on paper and hope they figure it out. How about you sit down with them and have an honest conversation? As one author says, how about you have the crucial conversation? In marriages, man, when we're unwilling to talk about things and confront things, over the years, a drift happens. You drift apart. Then, in midlife, an evaluation occurs. And you start looking at it, and when the evaluation is made, what happens? A crisis occurs. Oh, midlife crisis. What, have I, what I've discovered is when we're honest, we couple that with love because some people are just honestly ornery. But when we're honest in a loving way, when we speak truth in love, man, that establishes integrity. And when we establish integrity, you know where that leads? That leads to trust. And I love being able to be in a relationship with people. This is all built around relationship where I can step in and be real and be truthful and we can share honestly. And sometimes it's risky, it is. It's hard, it's difficult, but most people respect it. Most, especially if they're a godly person who values feedback. And eventually some people will even come to you as a person who they know they can get the honest truth from because you'll do it in love and in grace. Jacob used to be a me first person. That's how he lived his life. Now he's growing, he's trusting God, he's living with integrity, he's patiently waiting on God, and through that he discovered with Laban, taking all those steps, it's time to go, it's time to get out and to get away, because things are only getting destructive at this point. And by the way, Laban, what you've been saying, it's not true. So I need to speak up right now. I need to confront you with your deception, and I need to do that with truth. It was time for Jacob to leave. It was time for Jacob to confront deception with truth. My question for you this morning, what time is it for you? What time is it for you? Is it time to reassess a relationship that you cut bait on too quickly? To relook at that. Is it time for some of you, you know, maybe you weren't patient enough. For some of you, you didn't follow godly counsel. What time is it for you? Some of you, it's pick up the Bible. What does God's word say about that circumstance, that situation, that deal, that relationship? What time is it for you? Perhaps for some of you, it's time to reassess something 
a relationship, a circumstance, a situation that's unhealthy. And you do need godly counsel. You need to seek God in His Word. And you need to do that because for some of you, perhaps maybe a few, maybe it is time to cut bait. It is time to move on. Maybe for some of you, you've been placating somebody or something for fear of not wanting to step in, but the reality is you're making it worse because you're not being honest. What time is it for you? What time is it for you in that relationship, in that deal? What time is it for you in that job? What time is it for you in that ministry that you've been maybe avoiding, that you haven't stepped in and stepped up to? What time is it for you? And maybe in a ministry or a circumstance or situation, you've stayed too long. What time is it for you? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to ask you to really take a moment here before God. And we're going to take a moment. And this is a hard topic, it's a hard situation. And I want you to talk to God, and I want you to lay before God and say, God, I'm hearing this message today, and it's speaking truth to me. Heavenly Father, hear our prayers this morning. Father, hear the challenge that some of us have here today with God, with knowing what steps to take. God, this is hard, this is difficult, and, but it's real. God, some people here, it's time for them to, they've had these thoughts, these feelings, they need to seek godly counsel. God, some need to really pour into your word. God, for some here, it's time to just be men and women of integrity and faith and to speak truth into a situation, a relationship, a circumstance that they've held back on. Help them, God, to do that in a wise and godly way. Father God, as we give our offering to you, use this for your glory and for your kingdom. And I ask for this and I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.